Welcome back to another episode of Single Payer Radio. Single Payer Radio is a project of Kentuckians for Single Payer Healthcare. We are an affiliate of Physicians for a National Health Program, the Kentucky chapter, and we're proud to be a community partner here at Forward Radio. The views and opinions expressed on Single Payer Radio are those of the speakers and not the stations. And if you have comments about the show or would like to share your health care story, please send a note to Kay Tello. She's the chairperson over here at Kentuckians for Single Payer Health Care. Kay's email is nursenpo at aol.com. That's nursenpo at aol.com. And if you'd like to learn more about Kentuckians for Single Health Care, then Single Payer Health Care, you can go to kyhealthcare.org. And we're coming to you here on Forward Radio, WFMP LP. And we're coming to you because our listeners are our supporters. That's why we, we're on the air. We're an all-volunteer radio station, and we invite you to become part of the Forward Radio family. You can go to forwardradio.org. Please join us. And joining us back in the studio are Drs. Mike Flynn and Dr. Eugene Shively. And this morning... What are we going to be talking about, guys? Pharmaceuticals? Talk about the pharmaceutical industry in in this country. Uh, Before we do that, though, let me uh, do the usual disclaimer (coughs) uh, uh, indicating that uh, the comments that that I am making represent my personal views and uh, do not represent the views of the Department of Surgery or the University of Louisville that had been my employer, employer for about the last 30 years. I want to express the same thing. My views of that are my own. They don't represent the Department of Surgery nor Taylor Regional Hospital. I also like to say that some of these numbers are quite variable and things change. They almost change on a daily basis. For example, the drug industry leaders were supposed to meet at the White House today to discuss with President Trump uh, some ideas on how to reduce drug costs, but they decided not to come. So uh, the drug industry is in uh, is costing us a huge amount of money. It represents approximately uh, twice as much as any other wealthy country in the world. The United States spends twice as much on drugs as any other country, and we spend. Uh, we're responsible for half of the drug bill of the entire world. So that's significant. And we're hopefully we're going to talk a little bit about why it costs so much in America. Well, Trump took off to go to a rally somewhere, didn't he? Uh, was that the reason these guys didn't show up? Could I have a meeting in there in an empty room? Uh, <laughs> well, I don't think so. I think <laughs> okay. I think that the drug industry is the one who uh, yeah. decided okay. not to show up. 
Well, what we what I thought we thought we would do this morning is as to look at the pharmaceutical industry, uh, it, it just in the interest of time, in three components: the regulatory environment, uh, the high cost of drugs, and the opioid crisis. So let let me just begin with a a couple of sort of broad statements about uh, the regulatory environment. So first of all, one, there's no, there is no system in the U.S. to manage drug prices. Uh, Medicare, i say this again, <laughs> just one of those head scratchers, Medicare, which is the largest purchaser of drugs in the world, is prevented uh, by federal law from negotiating with the drug companies. And we'll talk about that in a little bit later in, in, in relation to the, the Part D issues. Uh, the FDA, the Federal Drug Administration, has uh, no regulatory authority to do uh, any comparative reviews of medications. Uh, in Canada, uh, Health Ministry has a drug review board that uh, reviews various drugs uh, for their effectiveness, their appropriateness to be used in, 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 that, in that country, and the price. And as we learned last uh, time when we had Dr. Krauss, that in Germany, the, the, uh, the, the, the company or the, the, the government negotiates with the drug companies, or I guess it was, a, was a, the, the health insurance companies in Germany. Is that correct, Gene? I, yeah, they, they, call they, it, they do the negotiating with the drug companies. They call it the sickness fund, mm -hmm. but I think each state has their own sickness fund. Yeah. Okay, one more thing about Medicare. And, um, it, one, again, as I mentioned, this is 60 million members, the largest uh, drug a purchaser in the world and is unable to negotiate with the drug companies. And uh, this was the, the result of the um, Medicare Modernization Act in 2003, in, in which uh, this Part D plan was put together to, to um, manage drug issues um, for Medicare. And they put uh, a, a step called uh, uh, pharmacy benefit managers in charge of uh, <laughs> this, this negotiation. And uh, we thought we could talk a little bit about that because, uh, at least in my opinion, this is another head scratcher about what exactly these folks are doing. You had some thoughts about that, Gene, I, and you mentioned. Uh, well, I think it was all political. The Congress said that, that, uh, that drug companies could charge anything they wanted, that Medicare uh, had no role in what the uh, actual price would be. Now, Medicare couldn't go so far over what they charged, but there was a limit on that. And it, it was strictly political. Now, these represent for-profit companies that take a cut out of this process, basically at the expense of <laughs> the Medicare beneficiary. 
Uh, so they've got their hand in the cookie jar. They represent a middleman between a drug company and a Medicare. Now, um, I, I agree with you. Whatever political process was going on there, it it um, this is this got into the law. Um, you, one wonders why uh, is it necessary to have for these people to exist. Now you could you could hire somebody who would work as a as a member of the uh, CMS, be on a salary, whose job would be to negotiate with the drug companies in the same way that the VA has employees of the VA who are negotiating the you know, drug prices with the drug companies. And as you mentioned earlier, we, the United States, we pay three to four times more uh, than countries that negotiate directly with the drug companies. Well, uh, let me just tell a couple of uh, personal stories, and then the reason I got interested in this is because uh, I, I would uh, ask a pharmacist, why does this drug cost so much? And uh, I must have asked 30 or 40 pharmacists that, and they, they, they claimed they didn't know, and I think they were telling the truth. Well... A little over a year ago, I switched from insurance with the hospital to Medicare. And so I had a, the chief pharmacist at our hospital look into this, which would cost me more to stay at the hospital or to go to a private pharmacy. And he looked at all the drugs I was on, and it took him about two days to figure this out. And he finally figured out that I was going to save about $1,000 to go to an outside private pharmacy. Well, then about the, I'm on a drug called Oxycarbenzaprine, which is a drug for uh, trigeminal neuralgia. And so the first time I went to buy this drug at the private pharmacy it was $137. So I called the the, uh, the hospital pharmacy and I said, how much you charge for it? And they said, $37. That's without insurance. And I said, how can that be? Well, I called the private pharmacy back and they said, oh, by the way, we've been looking on the computer and uh, we can get it to you for $20. I said, well, how can you do that? And they said, well, it's listed here, United Healthcare. I said, you talk about the insurance company? No, I don't know what this is, but you can get it for $20. I said, well, I'll take it. Let me give you another example. This, this, is, uh, this is a report from the uh, Kentucky Cabinet for um, Health and Family Services in 2019. And this has to do with the uh, pharmacy benefit manager issue. Uh, there are two uh, pharmacy benefit manager for-profit companies in Kentucky that manage the Medicaid prescriptions. 
And in, in 2018, they made $123 million in profit. So like $123 million in profit. This is Medicaid. This is the, you know, the, the, the government insurance for people who are not over 65 who, who are basically uninsured and need this. And the way this works is they, they pay the pharmacy a lower price to fill a prescription, and then they charge Medicaid a higher price for the same prescription, and they, they keep it. And, and again, you, you know, when, you, when you, you, you're scratching your head trying to figure out how you would figure out ways to, to provide good health care for, for people who are uninsured or underinsured, where did these guys come from? It's, and I agree, you, you're absolutely right. Whatever these circumstances were back in 2003, this was inserted there as a, as a, as a political benefit for somebody. Supposedly, the, the pharmacy benefit managers was for the purpose of saving money. And I, in the last two or three days, I've been trying to figure out exactly how they work. It's very complicated. It's not transparent. And there are about three uh, pharmacy benefit managers that control the cost of most drugs. Now, for example, they will negotiate with a pharmaceutical company, and then they will take that drug, and then they negotiate with several different companies, like insurance companies or pharmacies. And there will be a different price at Kroger or Walgreens or CVS. And you can actually get on the internet and look at uh, different prices, and there's a phenomenal difference. And what they're doing is they're negotiating different prices. Now, the drug company also will give the pharmacy benefit manager a rebate. About a fourth of the drugs in the United States that are sold, you can actually go without insurance, buy the drug over the uh, from the pharmacist for cash without your insurance and is cheaper than if you have your insurance. For example, if you go buy the particular drug and you use your insurance, you have to pay your copay. Well, the copay could be more than what the uh, cost of the drug is, yet the pharmacy benefit manager will get a rebate. They keep all that money. And, and you're paying your insurance, and then you're paying your copay. It's very, very complicated. You can go in, at a company called GoodRx, and there are lots of these companies now, and they negotiate with different uh, pharmacists, and they get discounts. Exactly how they do that, I don't know. But it's really interesting if you have the time uh, to look at the different costs of different drugs uh, from different pharmacies. Um, don't try to figure it out because it's too complicated and the truth is not out there. <laughs> complicated, huh? That, that seems like a foreign word with our healthcare system. And, and with the pharmacy benefit manager, it, it's not only, it, it seems like this issue came up a couple years ago that it's not only the cost of the drug, but also there were independent pharmacies who were not in on this. And that 
that um, creates an impact for you know locally owned and operated pharmacies. Yes, the big pharmaceutical companies like CVS, they negotiate a price. And then the the pharmacy benefit manager goes back to the drug company, gets a rebate. So the pharmacy benefit company is profiting on both ends. And and nobody really knows how much they're paying. Uh, Actually, they have contracts that you're not supposed uh, to reveal this information. There's a, there's a disclaimer in there that if a patient asks how much, uh, the pharmacy uh, pharmacist is supposed to tell them. But unless you ask, they, they're not going to tell you. And the pharmacist may not know how much. A pharmacist that works for Kroger probably does not know how much Kroger paid for this drug. And he for sure doesn't know how much rebate the pharmacy benefit manager got from the drug company. Now, losers here are the patient or the Medicare recipient or the Medicaid recipient or just somebody who happens to have private health insurance because they're all getting jiggled around by this system. And, you know, this is probably uh, is a good example of the kind of fundamental basic issue that we started talking about in the very beginning, how... uh, Healthcare in this country, instead of being considered an essential public service, and whether you call it a government responsibility or some other authority responsibility, it is considered a commodity and is exploited by uh, uh, these for-profit entities and this confusing, this roundabout, almost insane process of having somebody between Medicare, Medicaid, and and whatever other entity involved in in the production of drugs and prescriptions, making a profit by by sort of buying low and selling high, it, 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 it's I mean it, clearly just another example of the sort of things that somebody needs to address at some point if we're going to have a healthcare system that makes any sense. Uh, in, in terms of, of benefiting our citizens? Well, the uh, Trump administration, uh, of course, everything's political, but apparently they've gotten wind that a lot of people are concerned about this. And Trump uh, recently has uh, initiated some executive orders, one of which is that qualified health centers can pass on discounts for insulin and EpiPen. And then the other thing that they're uh, his executive order is, and I didn't know this was that the president could do this, is that uh, he's going to allow um, a pharmacist to buy drugs uh, from directly from Canada and other countries where the drugs are much cheaper. Uh, uh, this is one of the things that the pharmaceutical industry is upset about because obviously uh, they will lose a lot of money. Uh, and then there's also uh, uh, an executive order that rebates will have to be passed on uh, to the consumer. How this is going to work, I don't know. Uh, obviously, I think a lot of it will depend upon what happens in the November election. Yeah, this all gets so confusing and so difficult, especially for older people who, who really you know, take it in the neck. 
Uh, let me just make a comment about how at least one other country sort of deals with the issue of, of drug management, and then maybe we can kind of move on to some specifics about the high cost of drugs in this country. I talked a little bit about Canada and Germany. Now, Australia, again, country very similar to ours in many ways. Uh, a new drug uh, is, is brought onto the, into the marketplace. Then an application is made to a pharmaceutical benefits advisory committee. Now, this is a committee that's got a bunch of professional people on it who know a lot about, about drugs. It's not uh, a bunch of CEOs of the drug companies. And uh, they, they, they need to prove to this group that this drug is more effective than the others on the market. And the goal here is not to have five drugs all doing the same thing, which is what goes on in this country a lot. And then that committee makes a recommendation to the healthcare system either to buy the drug or not because their healthcare system is kind of like Germany and where, where the, they, they control the access to drugs by a regulatory body and they suggest a price. So, uh, so many other countries have done a better job than, than, than we have in, in managing these issues. Um, I, I'm sort of out of steam here with pharmacy benefit managers, Gene. <laughs> you got anything else you want to say about them before we move on to the cost of drugs uh, in this country and other countries? Well, I'll add one other thing. <laughs> is, uh, pharmacy, if we could eliminate pharmacy benefit managers, we would probably save about $150 billion. Yeah. That's a lot of money. Yeah, yeah. and there's so many examples of how th this uh, exploitation of the system by the for-profit entities is, exists. Yeah, and it's, it's not just patients, but it's also taxpayers yeah. that are getting the short end of the stick on this well. Well, they're supporting Medicare and, and Medicaid. Exactly. And, and, and this group's in there, have got their fingers in the pie. And I mean, literally, they, they buy low and sell high, uh, which I think if you can get away with it uh, when you're, you're selling cars or, or running shoes or something like that, I think makes a lot of sense. But when you're, if you're, doing, you're dealing with health care and the access to a, of a 65-year-old person to, to insulin, then, then that becomes an issue of morality, not just a matter of profit. The other thing that the pharmaceutical companies are doing now that they used to not do uh, is that they're direct-to-consumer advertising. And direct-to-consumer advertising cost us about $30 billion approximately. Uh, about 86% of that advertising is from hospitals and pharmaceuticals, and about two-thirds yeah. of that comes from uh, uh, from f direct uh, advertising to consumers, and this creates a real problem. Uh, uh, they're advertising some very complicated drugs, some drugs that are actually dangerous, and uh, sometimes I, I, I see an advertisement and I'll get out my iPhone and, and look it up. It's a drug I've never heard of. And 
they're telling patients that they need to take this. And patients frequently go to their doctor and say, why don't you try this drug? We are the only country in the world that does this kind of uh, behavior uh, modification. And it costs us a huge amount of money. And try to watch um, the news at, in the evening, whether it's CNN, MSNBC, or Fox News. Uh, you get about five minutes of news and then five minutes of a, an annoying advertisement about Eliquis or some constipation medicine that's magical or, or some other <laughs> thing like that. I mean, it's, yeah. Well, listen, let, let, let's, let's talk a little bit about uh, how much drug costs in this country compared to other countries. Um, I've got three examples right, right here. Uh, Nexium, which um, the so the monthly uh, equivalent cost in um, uh, this country is two hundred and fifty dollars for an equivalent amount of the same drug in the Netherlands is twenty three dollars, and Humira uh, again uh, a, an equivalent monthly uh, dosage. Uh, in the U.S. is uh, over $2,000. Uh, it's half that, $1,100 in England, and about a quarter of that, $800 in Switzerland. One more example is Gleevec, which is an anti-cancer drug, costs over $6,000 in this country. And this is, the, this is just, this is the monthly dosage. Uh, England, it's a third of that, it's $2,600. And in Canada, it's uh, a little over 1,100. Huge differences of, and you know, we've got, there are more of these we can talk about, but uh, uh, co co any comments about that, Gene? I'm gonna talk about a, a caravan to Canada in a minute. <laughs> <laughs> well, I've got some data on the per capita spending of pharmaceuticals yeah. in the, the United States. We spend uh, approximately $1,400 per capita in uh, Germany, it's half that, 667. Netherlands, 465. And in Sweden, 566. So we as uh, consumers and for pharmaceuticals in America spend approximately twice as much as most other wealthy countries. Yes. Um, again, the caravan to Canada. This is back in May of 2019, and it's the same issue of how much drugs cost and, and, and the, the access or the lack of access to these drugs by people who may have some financial limitations. So this caravan of about 20 cars went from Minneapolis to London, Ontario, purchase insulin which is not a recreational drug. I mean, this is a, this is a serious life-sustaining life, uh, uh, medication. Uh, the average insulin cost in the USA from 2012 went from uh, $2,800 to $5,700. That's almost, uh, that's at least a two and a half times increase in a matter of four years so that's that's a big hit for for folks that have limited resources vial of insulin in the u.s costs 320 dollars 
in Canada, it costs $30. So this caravan of people of 20 cars that went up to London, Ontario, saved an average of $3,000 on purchasing insulin in, in Canada, as opposed to having to go through the, 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 the high cost of drugs here for the reasons that we've, we've, we've been discussing. Now yeah. I got. Go ahead. Well, I've got some other examples of of the the you know, the insane differences uh, between the cost of drugs in Canada and here. So EpiPen, this is the the uh, epinephrine uh, gadget that's the, the injection for anaphylaxis, two hundred and ninety dollars in Canada, six hundred and twenty dollars in the U.S. Crestor, um, the lower your cholesterol, 160. This is, again, this is a, an average comparative doses. Uh, $160 in the U.S., uh, I'm sorry, Canada, $730 in the U.S. I'm not going to go through all of these. Nexium for heartburn, we already talked about that. That's $214 here, <clears throat> $736 in Canada. Now, Synthroid, and this is not a drug that was just recently developed after 10 years of, of research. It's been around since the flood. $50 in the U.S., it's twice as, and you know, just as, just this, uh, I'll talk about a generic. And then the last one on here uh, will, was is Advair, uh, asthma, and COPD. Two hundred and twelve dollars in in the U.S. in Canada and uh, nine hundred and eighty dollars in Canada. So the three three to four times more expensive in this country to purchase drugs than it is to go to Canada, where we mentioned earlier the drugs. There's an there's a regulatory body that controls the the cost of drugs in that country and in many others. Now, another example is uh, erythromycin, which is a drug that's been around at least since the late <clears throat> 40s or early 50s, $600 in this country. And uh, doxycycline, which used to be on a $4 list, is now 60 or $70 per, for our average prescription. And these doxycycline is uh, kind of important for people who have resistant organism like uh, resistant uh, Staphylococcus, uh, MRSA, and and we have to pay a huge amount of money, and it used to be very cheap. Now, doesn't uh, mo doesn't a lot of the research that goes into the development of these drugs isn't that the, our government does a lot of that research, doesn't it? So it seems like that could save. On some of the cost. Well, <clears throat> uh, actually, we talked about this a little bit when when Dr. Krauss was here. Um, I've been on the IRB at the University of Louisville about 15 years, and um, 15 years ago when I started, there was a pretty good percentage of of uh, research which was government funded. From independent study groups, uh, you know the East, the Children's Oncology Group, COG, or 
RTOG, the regulate, radiation oncology uh, uh, group. Uh, these were all uh, independent bodies that are made up of, 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 of usually medical professionals, uh, pharmacists, uh, you know, people who just want to find an answer. And uh, over that period of 15 years, the number of studies that are protocols that are written by these government-funded, NIH-funded uh, study groups has decreased, and the number of s protocols for new drugs that uh, we see now uh, are very much in a majority from the pharmaceutical industry. So they're industry-sponsored. It's interesting how in a short period of time, 15 years, this process has changed as, as, as the, the national um, government-sponsored research has decreased and industry-sponsored research has increased. And one of the interesting um, effects of that on an, an institutional review board, when you review a protocol, the purpose of reviewing it is to make sure that that whoever decides to uh, be included in the study knows why they're having the study, what the potential benefits might be, if there are any, and what the risk might be. And it's a fairly complicated process when you review one of these protocols. But what I've noticed is if you review an industry protocol that's written by the, the drug company or whatever other industry company is, is submitting the protocol because some of these are, are, are developments from, from different, other, different types of companies. Uh, they, 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 in subtle ways, they tend to, to, to sort of increase the, 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 the benefits and, 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 and decrease the risks. And so as a, as an interest, as a review board, uh, we, we often are in the, have the responsibility of making them uh, rewrite the protocols or rewrite the informed consent so that the risks and the benefits represent more of a reality and then, then the sort of wishful thinking that often comes up in, in these. So, uh, Mark, to answer your question, I, I, there's less research going on that is funded independently by the government than it was 15 years ago. I think, though, we ought to give the drug companies uh, some credit. I mean, they've done some remarkable things. For example, the antivirals. Virus. I would have uh, never thought that patients with AIDS in the 80s would now be living a normal life expectancy. Some of the new cancer drugs are just phenomenal. Um, patients with metastatic melanoma, patients with metastatic lung cancer, we've got some new drugs uh, that these patients are disease-free. Uh, Jimmy Carter's an example of melanoma where uh, he had metastatic disease, was given one of these new drugs, and now he's disease-free. So they are doing some great things. 
Oh, they are. But again, I, I think, you know, one of the things I hope we, we can get to in, in, a, in another program is, is, is what we really do well in this country. And what we do well in this country is we, and, and Dr. Krauss alluded to that when, when she was on, is we, we do uh, investigate and develop uh, uh, new drugs, but we do this in a way that is safe and it's regulated and it's regulated by the FDA and health and human services and, and, and the institutional review boards all over the country are, are, are in control of how this process works. Now, if that ever goes away, then uh, Katie bar the door because who knows what's going to happen. But I think the, to their credit, the drug companies do a good job as long as they're, they're, they're in a, in a well-coordinated uh, and well-regulated environment. And, and, and you know, just from a sort of philosophical standpoint, I think you can say the same thing about capitalism. Capitalism is a good system as long as capitalism is regulated and I mean that's the way it was in this country from about the 40s to got to the 60s or the 70s and and then the world started to change. Yeah that's a good example regulation of the banking industry and and Wall Street. Well and I guess I had a question about the relationship between FDA and industry funding does does the industry fund uh, do they supply funding to the FDA the industry FDA is supposed to regulate I mean isn't there some kind of connection between I, those I, two? Honest, I don't know the answer to okay. that do you Gene no okay. I don't think there yeah. is okay the FDA is strictly regulation and they go through a very complicated process to um, um, to make sure the drug's safe and it's, uh, that it's indicated. Uh, it's become, they've become overwhelmed though. For example, when I graduate medical school in 1970, there are probably about two or 300 drugs that were worthwhile. There's, there's now that many drugs that are coming out who are, um, are, um, a year that are worthwhile and it's impossible to keep up with them. But the drug, but the, the FDA is limited in, in doing just what you said, the, the, the indications and the safety and the effectiveness, which is important. Um, the cost of drugs, which is one of the issues that we're talking about here, is not regulated by the FDA or, or anyone else. Uh, which are issues that are regulated and, and controlled uh, in, in most other first world developed countries. I would just say uh, to our listeners that you're listening to Single Payer Radio here on WFMP LP Forward Radio. We've got Dr. Mike Flynn and Dr. Gene Shively talking about the pharmaceutical industry. Now, let's talk a little bit about two things, drug company profits um, and marketing and something that Mark alluded to a, a little bit earlier about the, 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 the cost of research and the supposed justification uh, by the pharmaceutical industry that the high cost of drugs in this country 
are are under essentially underwriting the development of new drugs, which is not true, but it it, it sounds good. So I, I've got a I've got some numbers from a, a, a JAMA Journal of American Medical uh, uh, Association. This, this was a, a 2000 to 2018 um, profits from the 35 top pharmaceutical companies in this country. So their combined revenue. <laughs> Eleven point five trillion dollars. Now, I mean, really, this is these are astronomic numbers, and the gross profits are eight point six trillion dollars. That's they make more money than 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 the budget of some you know of, of many middle-sized countries. A huge amount of money is going into these uh, into these companies. And uh, another, an, another um, something you, you referred to earlier, Gene, was a direct-to-consumer uh, marketing, which is a which is a huge issue. And this is this is from Health News in 2019. Uh, the annual uh, health care uh, marketing uh, was uh, drug companies. Seventeen billion dollars in 1997. By 2016, it had increased to 30 billion dollars, and the direct-to-consumer marketing uh, in 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 uh, 1997 was two billion dollars, and it increased to nine billion dollars. So they've recognized the value. Of being able to talk directly to whoever happens to be sitting in front of the television set to sell drugs, and we're the only country in the world, except for New Zealand, yeah, that uh, is allowed to market drugs to the public. And now this doesn't count the amount of money they spend on marketing to providers and uh, also paying providers to give lectures and those kind of things. I remember when I first went into practice, uh, the uh, representatives from a drug company would come by. Uh, they were usually pharmacists. They would give you some good information. Uh, they would give you sample drugs that you could give the people who couldn't afford the drugs. And I never felt pressured that I had to buy this drug. I, I, I felt that, that they were giving me good information. Now it's different. Almost all the drug reps have degrees in marketing. And um, uh, I, 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 it's just totally different. I feel like they're trying to seduce you rather than uh, give you good information. Yeah, I I really never never actually dealt with much of that. I, I I just didn't want to do it. I was uncomfortable. They would come in the office and they would bring a bunch of sandwiches in and do things like that. I, I ran the VA tumor conference for about ten years, uh, and for a period of time, we this was at seven o'clock on a Tuesday morning. We the we would 
we had a drug representative would come in. Uh, I let them put a table up in the back of the room, and they'd have some orange juice and coffee and 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 donuts and things like that. And they could put their products out. I never let them talk. They didn't get the podium for any reason. And you know the people that came in, they could be there early and they could stay afterward. And uh, residents and the, the medical students and the staff that went. And then the VA, uh, oh, I don't know, after about four or five years, they decided that, that they just, the VA then had a policy that drug reps weren't going to be there anymore, and they were gone. And, and that was really the only, the only yeah, I, I never went on one of these tours. You know, they'd take you on a boat you know, <laughs> down to the Caribbean, and, and you'd have to listen to these, these things. No, really. I mean, uh, out in Colorado, you'd go skiing. People would go out to Colorado. They'd be up there at 7 o'clock in the morning from about 7 to 9 or 10. And they'd all be sitting around with their ski boots and, and listening to somebody do something and then about as soon as the thing was over you could hear all the boots getting clapped and everybody clumped out the door and went to the slope so there was a lot of that going on uh, if we have enough time to get into some of the oxycontin thing with the drug uh you know the opioid crisis uh, there's some interesting thoughts i've got about that there well let me just say as a patient and i don't get into the doctor but uh <laughs> Hopefully it continues once a year. I'm sitting there waiting to uh, be called back, and I see an army of suits going yeah, back, yeah. and it just it just seems like it never stops sometimes. Yeah, I, I, I refuse to do that. I, I just didn't have any. The only time, actually the only time I had um, one of those representatives was a guy showed up with a, a special gamma probe, you know, we, we used to do this parathyroid surgery and you would, would, would um, give them a radioisotope, which would concentrate in the parathyroid. This is a gland in the neck that controls the calcium metabolism. And when it becomes overactive, um, and, and 90, 95% of the time it's one gland, you've got four of them. If you can find that one gland, you can take it out doing a relatively small, you know, quick operation with a small incision. And um, so the way to do this was to, to give um, a, the radioisotope, which, which is a, which is a, a visual, uh, it concentrates in the gland, and you actually can see, see where it is. And, and hey, this guy was, 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 and there's a probe that measures the radiation that you move around on the neck. But this guy came in with one of those things that, that uh, it didn't work very well. I mean, it was just a waste of time. Anyhow, we're getting off topic here. Let, let me, uh, I, I'm going to talk a little bit about um, this issue of uh, the high cost of drugs in this company in country uh, being necessary to, to support or underwrite the development of new drugs. And as soon as the fire department gets by, I'll, I'll uh, <laughs> talk about that. Okay. So there's a, there's a book written by a couple of guys named David and Paul Belk. It's called The Great American Healthcare Scam. And 
basically uh, it deals with the high cost of, of drugs um, necessary for the development, uh, new drug development. So in this book, they, they, they've done a couple of things which were interesting. Number one, uh, they reviewed uh, the Pfizer annual financial report. So on page 17, they've got, this is 2011, the total revenue of Pfizer in 2011 was $17 billion, which is, you know, that's not bad. Uh, they spent uh, $9 billion on research and development, which is 14% of their total revenue. They spent $19 billion, over twice as much, on marketing. And they had a net income, a profit, of $10 billion. So these guys are not going broke, and they're not, they're not using huge amounts of revenue to underwrite the development of new drugs. And then they, they went on, uh, a little further on, they, they, they reviewed the, uh, from 2011 to 2018, the combined profits of 13 major drug companies uh, uh, comparing the profits versus the cost of research versus the cost of marketing. Again, this is not just one company at one year. This is multiple companies over multiple years. So it averaged out that about 17% of their total revenue was spent on the development and research of new drugs. 27%, little less than twice that, was spent on marketing. 6% in taxes, which I felt was an awful example of, I don't know what your tax burden was, but uh, when I was working, I was paying 35 to 40, 48% taxes. These people are paying 6%. And they're 19% profits. I mean, it doesn't get much better than that. And so this whole idea of, of, of the high cost of drugs in this company, this company, I don't know why I keep saying that, in this country uh, 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 is necessary in order to justify or underwrite the development of new drugs simply isn't true. And, uh, you know, a lot of people believe this including my brother-in-law, who we may have on here at one point later down the road. Well, I used to believe it myself Yeah. until I started reading about it. Yeah. There's a new addition to that book. Okay, well, I haven't got to that yet. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, you talk about corporate welfare reform needed. Yes. I mean, good Lord. I mean, 6% taxes. I, I, you know, and th these people are making billions, multi-billions of dollars a year, and they're paying 6% tax. And what year was that? <clears throat> Let me see here. Uh, well, this was, this was, th this was um, seven years from 2011 to 2018, 13 
drug company. So this, again, this was not one drug company for one year. So this represents this 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 represents the 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 kind of corporate welfare that 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 exists when you think about some people like us who I, I don't consider us multimillionaires. I think we're both comfortable. But I when I was when I was and I wasn't you know working I wasn't in some sort of independent practice. I worked with the university. Uh, I, I was paying 35, 38 percent. Uh, of taxes, <laughs> these guys are paying six. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Okay. Well, um, let's see. Uh, we're getting short on time. I'm trying to think how best way to get into the 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 opioid crisis. Let's just do this quickly. Uh, there were three waves, okay? There was uh, the, the, the opioid wave, then there was the, uh, I can't see this, I'm gonna, let's, let's go straight to the OxyContin issue. Um, basically, OxyContin is a morphine in a pill, okay? And crush it. Uh, if you're an addict, uh, 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 you can either inhale it or swallow it, and you get a quick, intense high. And this was marketed by Purdue Pharma, which is a company owned by the Sackler family, which has offshored billions of dollars to keep them from being vulnerable to lawsuits. Uh, they did aggressive marketing uh, in the, quote, non-malignant pain market, unquote. And they did all of the things that, Gene, we've talked about earlier, but drug, they had conferences, they had uh, speaker training, they did these in resorts in Florida, California. They focused on primary care physicians, and their sales, uh, OxyContin sales, went from 49 million in 1996 to over 1.1 billion in 2000. And one of the issues that they were, were, were focused on as they were marketing OxyContin was that they were minimizing the risk of addiction. And, and the people that were going to these speaker bureaus and the sales reps who were all going out to the communities and telling people the risk of addiction was very low. And we know the risk of addiction can be as high as 50% today. It may even be higher than it, that. Yeah. Well, uh, we've got a real problem with the opioid addiction, and it's not going to be easy to solve. Yeah. There are other factors involved. Uh, uh, in the 90s, uh, based on a, uh, some opinion of one doctor, which was really not a paper, so they came up with the idea that uh, pain is a vital sign. And you remember when yeah. we had signs all over the hospital, yeah. particularly in the ER, um, how much pain are you having? And it was a requirement that we emphasize that. In so doing that, we, um, we gave too many narcotics. I remember making rounds, particularly one nurse, when in the morning she always asked, how much pain are you having on a scale of 1 to 10? We have this little smiley face symbol, 
and I'd see guys sitting there eating breakfast and saying, oh, my pain is eight. Well, I don't think you can have a pain of eight and eat breakfast. <laughs> so, uh, and then there were other factors. Most doctors should have known that uh, not to give that much narcotics. I, I'm not sure why we got trapped into that. Well, uh, <clears throat> let me give you a couple more quick numbers, and, and, and we're getting, I know we're getting short on time. So between <clears throat> 1999 and 2017, uh, 700,000 drug overdose deaths and 400,000 of those were opioid overdoses. And um, a lot of lawsuits, Purdue Pharma, Johnson & Johnson, 24 states in Washington, D.C. Uh, the legal profession has a term, uh, res ipsa loquitur, which is Latin for the thing speaks for itself. And basically what that means is that whatever is going on here, whether it's a, a crime or some event, uh, is so obvious that it doesn't require a bunch of... of of, of uh, documentation and supporting evidence. And let me quickly run through a quick example of what that, of what an example of that related to the opioid crisis. 2006 to 2012, pharmaceutical companies shipped 76 billion, 76 billion opioid pills to a single pharmacy in a place called Kermit, West Virginia. Kermit, West Virginia has a population of 400. Now, you would have thought that at some point in time, a little yellow or red light would have gone off in the head of a pharmaceutical executive wondering what those 400 people are doing with 76 billion opioid pills. Okay, guys. Another hour has flown by. Yeah, uh, Mike, it sounds like that pharmacy benefits manager fell down on his job there. <laughs> oh, Lord. But uh, let me tell folks that single-payer radio can be heard on Mondays at 2 p.m., Tuesdays at 7 a.m., and Wednesdays at 11 a.m., and to get more information about Kentuckians for single-payer health care, you can go to kyhealthcare.org. Single-payer radio is now heard weekly. And Dr. Flynn, Dr. Shavley, thanks again. And we'll be back in our listeners' ear next week. Thank you. Thank you.